Hey, it's Anita and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello everybody and welcome to the Anita Posh Show, where it is my pleasure to keep you up to date with topics around Bitcoin on a global stage and also the local impact it has on people like you and me. Today's guests are two true cypherpunks. They are Stacey Herbert and Max Kaiser, hosts of the Orange Pill podcast and the Kaiser Report, which has been broadcasted since 2009 and has 4.5 million subscribers on YouTube. It's one of the biggest shows on YouTube where the hosts are talking about Bitcoin. Since 2011, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert are active in the Bitcoin space, and I'm going to ask them why they chose Bitcoin so early on and why they kept working in this space until now. I'm also going to ask them some questions that people on Twitter were asking. Before we start, a short message from my sponsors, and also please subscribe to my show in your podcast player now. Go to the podcast player, search for the Anita Posh Show and hit the subscribe button. And also, if you prefer to watch this on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel now because I'm going to make a lot of shows in the future also and also some educational material. Okay, now on to the show and before a short word from my sponsors. Enjoy. Local Bitcoins is an easy, fast and safe way to buy and sell Bitcoin directly from person to person. Join Local Bitcoins to bring Bitcoin everywhere and secure your financial freedom. Winter is ending, spring is coming, but your crypto storage shouldn't melt like snow and keep cool. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features, such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features, which prevent the manipulation of the card. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com slash Anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link slash weekly. Hello, Stacey and Max. Welcome to the Anita Posh Show. It's great to have you here. I feel very honored. I love being here. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> Finally. Finally, exactly. Yeah, Stacey, let's start with a short introduction. I know 4.5 million people are subscribed to your Kaiser Report uh, on YouTube. So many people know you, but maybe some of my guests or not guests, but uh, viewers don't. Stacey, Please, can you tell me a little bit about your background? What happened in your life before you met Max? God, I can't even remember life before Max. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to work in Hollywood. So I worked for a movie producer, made Taxi Driver, Close Encounters and this thing. And I was one of those uh, young Turks out there at the time, they called us, um, 19, 20 years old, working in Hollywood and having a good time. 
And then I, a project took me to London and I ended up staying there because I just liked the lifestyle of Europe versus uh, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I ended up working in film there and then at the BBC uh, on a comedy series. And when that wrapped, I moved to the south of France just to stay with a friend, take a vacation. And I met Max down there. Oh, on the vacation. Yeah, what a vacation. (laughs) It radically altered my life. So Mm -hmm. I'm here right now with you because of that vacation. And so my background was in, yeah, in storytelling, working on scripts, narratives, bringing content like that to the market. And in London, I also worked with uh, film distribution. So I did a lot of sales, film sales across Europe, Asia, Latin America. So had to do, I, I learned all about Forex trading and because all our contracts were in dollars, but their currencies would often crash. Like at that time, the, it's, Italy still had the lira and it would crash all the time and they would have to renegotiate. So it taught me a lot about international trade and how a currency can really mess with the system. Tell me a little bit about Pope Town, please. I think that was one of your first experiences of being cancelled, huh? That was my ex- first experience with Germans in particular. German Catholics were very upset with that. That's funny because my background is Irish-American. Fin- I'm also Finnish, half Finnish, but the Finnish <laughs> side is Lutheran, but we were raised the, on the Irish Catholic side. And when the the project was by fr- some French producers who had this cartoon character set in in the Vatican and the Pope was an American Pope. So we were before the young Pope with having an American Pope and he had dementia. (laughs) So I actually did like the, the template for the voice. It was like, I am the Pope. I am the Pope. But I did say, and actually bizarrely for your, for London, the two executives at the BBC who commissioned it were both Catholic as well. And I did say, don't you think people are going to be angry with this because it's the Pope character? Like we can make fun of priests and stuff, but they might be like upset about the Pope. Anyway, nobody thought it. And we built, it, it takes years. Now this is the project I was working on right before I met Max. So it took three years to do an animated series. It's a very long, tedious process. And I was so exhausted on the last day I went to the South of France. Like as soon <laughs> as we wrapped, I went and met Max. But the Germans, yeah, there was a hate site uh, devoted to me in particular. I don't know why, <laughs> but they, they were very upset with it. And then the BBC had to cancel. I thought it was, it was funny, but it, it didn't seem to me, even as a Catholic or any of the other people on the, most of the people working on it were uh, Catholic. They didn't seem to be, none of us were offended, but I guess the population of Catholics at large were offended and we were canceled. Okay. And you work together with Ruby Wax, the script editor of AppFab, because I'm a huge fan of AppFab. And when I read that, I was like, wow, (laughs) how great is that? Yeah, yeah. We had loads of people. We had uh, Matt Lucas, we had Mackenzie Crook, we had Jerry Hall. We had like all the top comedians in London were working on it. And it was fun because I, because I, Matt Lucas did the Pope voice for the series But like I, because of course we're not going to pay thousands of dollars a day for him to come in and read against everybody else. So I would do the Pope character with all these others, like including Ruby Wax. So I would play the Pope for her. (laughs) (laughs) And Matt Lucas is of Little Britain, the guy who always says, I'm the only gay in the village. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's fun. And it's funny because he's so wild on screen, but 
I guess like Steve Martin, he's very serious in person. Like mm-hmm. he's very like observant. He, you could see him watching everybody like and studying you and studying your actions and studying. And he, he and I worked together on the Pope character voice because he's, he was playing an American Pope. So I had to tell him how to do the American voice. But then I, I think the BBC, they swapped out. They ended up redoing, like the original is with Matt Lucas. And then they redid the voice with Bob Mortimer of Reeves and Mortimer in the UK. There was that controversy as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Max, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. You have a theater background. I was in New York University uh, studying radio. I was doing a lot of radio. Uh, I was also studying television, film, and theater. And in 1982, I started on Wall Street. And I was there for eight years. And in 1990, I took my first break, moving to Paris. I lived there for five years and did a lot of did a lot of nothing really. I was semi-retired. <laughs> Then I sold a script to Miramax Films in Los Angeles with Alec Baldwin attached. He invited me to Los Angeles to produce. And when I got there, I hooked up with a friend of mine from Wall Street. We started the Hollywood Stock Exchange. Five years later, we sold it to Cantor Fitzgerald, and then I moved back to France. I moved back to the south of France. I went back into semi-retirement, met Stacy <laughs> in 2003. We started doing content together and film and television, and we just had a really good chemistry together. So it's worked out really well, and then we, that's the story in a nutshell. Yeah, but it's now I can see how all this came together because with your backgrounds, it's perfect, a perfect setup for the Kaiser Report and for the Orange Pill podcast. And also knowing about your theater background, I now can understand more your like acting on stage sometimes. And I, I think that's perfect. It's, I, I think it's just great how you're doing it also because it's also entertaining. It's not all on only education or, uh, discourse about something. Yeah. And I think that's great. And then I think you also were writing a screenplay of the life of Houdini. <laughs> right. It was, uh, this is this, the film I sold to, well, the film idea I sold to Mirabax. It was, okay. it, it takes place during the time of Houdini, but it's about two others, two other magicians slash uh, mentalists who mm-hmm. uh, pose as psychics, psychic mediums. And Houdini comes in at the end, but it's primarily about these two brothers who, who are posing as psychic mediums to escape the law. They're being wrongly accused of a murder. So they go underground and pose as psychic mediums. That's a, the setup. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, I believe you founded Karma Bank together. Is that right? Karma Bank. I started the Karma Bank in the, probably in the early 2000s. And then when Stacy and I did a lot of work on it once I met Stacy because at that time the need for it broadened because there was a lot of anti-globalization protests. And the idea behind Karma Bank was really we see with Wall Street Bets now. Wall Street Bets has figured out that you can swarm on different companies, listed companies, and impact how the stock is trading for a political end to, as activists, as political activists and as financial activists. So that was the premise of Karma Bank is to try to figure out which companies are the most uh, vulnerable to that type of action by the masses of, of protesters out there. 
And then that also rolled into crash JP Morgan by silver, which was another attempt to use the masses to swarm onto vulnerabilities on Wall Street for a political end. And then, so that was really, we've invented the idea of financial activism. Then came Occupy Wall Street, and that was all done outside of the exchange. And we were saying, hey, Karma Bank or Crash JP Morgan buy silver. This is how you get into the exchange. This is how you create the, this political situation from within. But that message didn't, did not get a lot of traction with that group. But then Wall Street bets now, finally, the millennials and Gen Z have figured out that they've got a lot of ways to, uh, uh, you know, express their activism and political beliefs using capitalism, the tools of capitalism and for their own purposes. I think a lot of people, and that's thematically, that's also with the Kaiser report is that the language and the structure and the institutions of Wall Street are fragile. They always have been very fragile. And there's ways to outmaneuver. There's ways to topple. There's ways to push back using the same techniques and, and technologies and things that are there already to get your voice into, into the mix to push back politically. And so we, we were working on this. It, it made the content very interesting because it was financial content, but it was also, there was a, a very edgy quality to it because we were exploring how to tap into the anti-globalization movement, which was gaining traction really since, since the early 2000s. And so two things have been happening for the last almost eight, you know, 18 years that we've been doing this content. One is that the fragility of the system has increased and the outrage by people all over the world of the financial system has also increased. So that's why I think why the popularity of our show has, has increased along with those two major trends. And so now when, then when Bitcoin came around, it was then another major, major chapter. And I saw an interview with you from 2006, where we were saying you're a financial anarchist, and that the environment has only 10 or 20 years to go until it collapses. So basically, you had a very environmental concerns. And now we have Bitcoin, which is boiling the oceans. How does this go together? <laughs> Yeah, it goes together perfectly because depending on whose study you look at, Bitcoin's energy use is between 35 and 70% renewables. And it has a tendency to seek out renewable energy because it's the cheapest energy. And it also has a tendency to repurpose wasting energy, like with flaring gas rigs and oil rigs back into Bitcoin usage. So Bitcoin is the most, is the greatest thing for environmentalists to ever come around. Yeah, which actually might also be a reason, not why, but also another reason why Elon Musk maybe invested in it, because he's not silly. Because many people wrote, no, I'm, I don't like Elon Musk anymore. Now he, on the one hand, he's building electric cars and on the other side, he's buying Bitcoin that doesn't go together. I, I might also add that at that time, Max was speaking to the head of Greenpeace in Amsterdam, for example. We went there to meet with them. And Max included in the environment the ecosystem of money and finance. Mm -hmm. So that is part of what, when he was talking about the environment, that is part of it. I was talking about risk as being the toxic byproduct of 
capitalism and that the financial oceans were being polluted with this risk, with risk. The risk is still a major pollutant to the global financial system in the form of toxic derivative trading, market manipulation, insider dealing. And it has the effect of undermining the economy and markets. And the results are huge economic dislocations and distortions and wealth gaps, right? That's the, that's the event. That's the effect of risk polluting the system. Just like you pour toxic sludge into the river, you're going to pollute that river. When you pour toxic derivatives into the world global financial system, you, you pollute the global financial system and it has, has huge. And I was trying to get Greenpeace to take this on board that they should include with their profile of environmentalism, financial toxicity, uh, along with other pollutants and other things that they would consider to be toxic. And I got a lot of attention for a couple of years. Eventually, though, they, I was told that with Greenpeace that we can't really talk too much about financial things because it would alienate their core donor on the street who's giving them $5 who has a certain vision about Greenpeace and they're not going to be able to wrap their mind around what you're saying and we don't want to alienate them. So I realized that uh, that was not going to, that not going to work. Yeah, but I think there is one Greenpeace site at least where they take Bitcoin as donations. So <laughs> I'm going to have to find out which one, but a friend of mine told me that. Well, it also led directly to us making becoming global. Like the fact that we have a global television show was directly caused by that that Greenpeace campaign and that conversation because we did Max and Zach Goldsmith. They had the, they had this idea for a hedge fund to short these companies and that got global attention that was covered in the Washington Post, the New York Times. And in particular, a magazine in the United Kingdom called Private Eye, which is not a wide circulation, but it's a very influential magazine. And they wrote about Max twice. Now we were living in the South of France and had no idea because even today, Private Eye is barely has an online presence. But certainly back in 2003 or 2004, it didn't. A producer, a news producer named Richard Dove is a fanatic of this magazine. He actually has every single uh, edition and there are thousands of them in his garage. So he read twice about us and he was just moved from the BBC to Al Jazeera English and was about to launch. He was like one of the heads of Al Jazeera English to launch it. And he just emailed us out of the blue and said, hey, do you guys want to make a film for our launch week? And I was like, uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, that was really the launch of our TV career. And it's a funny story because that email, in those days, to get my email, I went to an email site at that time, like <laughs> mail to web or something. And it was 98% spam and garbage. And I used to go through that kind of half asleep. And I just spotted this one email from Al, from Al Jazeera English. And I thought, huh, what's this? And I opened it up and it was, sure enough, it was this invitation to, to come in and talk about producing some short films for one of their shows, People in Power. And that was really the beginning of our whole film and TV careers. And now that we're talking about it, I remember when we made the first one, how for me as a presenter, it was, we were, grappling with what, how I should be, present something like that. And 
So in those 10 films that we made for Al Jazeera English, I'm always wearing the exact same suit and tie, no matter where I am in the world. And Even I, in the <laughs> desert or in Iceland. At the geyser. <laughs> so I kind of got that. I was My inspiration was a little bit Buster Keaton, where <laughs> it's a man who's at the mercy of the elements type of thing. And there's some comedy behind that, but not fall down comedy, clowny comedy, but more subtle comedy. So that was, that's the approach. And in those films, we did take a much more cinematic approach. Yeah. In, in the one we did in the, in Qatar near the Saudi Arabian border, we were working with a cinematographer friend of mine from college and we were trying to recreate some of the David Lean shots from Lawrence of Arabia and things like that. And uh, there's a lot of filmmaking tricks that we were using and stuff that was got back to my university days. And uh, so that, that was uh, an interesting, you know, period. Then we segued into, then we were living in Paris and I was doing a lot of these appearances where I'm talking on the news, right? So I'm like one of the only English speakers in Paris that can speak about economics and finance. So I was getting called in a lot to these programs as a talking head to do two or three minute shots. And so one day I'm asking the, the head of this studio for, for that was in Paris. And I'm, I'm, I say, well, I'm not here. How much of this studio, how, how booked is this place? How busy are you? He's like, not very busy. We shoot maybe an hour of stuff a day. So I, I thought, why don't we just create a show instead of having me come in and talk for two minutes? Let's Max and Stacy could do a half hour show. And then you guys go out to the global market and try and sell it. And we can deliver a show cheap. So that's what happened. And that's how we ended up on all these international networks. Basically, it came from that idea, just literally thinking, this is wasted studio space. We can create a show here and you can sell it. You've got the satellite feeds. You've got all these networks that need content and we'll just do this show. So that was the beginning. And we've done now going on probably 4,000 episodes if you include all the various networks and things that we've done over the last almost 18 years. Yeah. And I might add, like when we first did that Al Jazeera thing, it's important to remember that was the launch week. So our first film we made for them was called Death of the Dollar. And we had all these guests booked. And then within uh, two or three weeks of them commissioning us, the headlines read Bush and Blair nearly almost bombed Al Jazeera that they're, they were going to, they planned on bombing Al Jazeera in Qatar and Doha because it was the war on terror. And they said it was Al Qaeda TV and stuff like that. So mm. all of our guests backed out. Nobody wanted to be uh, mm. involved. So it led us down a different path. We ended up speaking to more uh, heterodox thinkers, gold bugs, like libertarians, people who all the lefties were like, no way, I will never work again. Do not touch, do not ever contact me again. We called some of the gold bugs we had read on, 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 on 321 gold and stuff like that. And they were like, yeah, okay, why not? And so we, mm -hmm. it took us down a path that we might not have. We were forced down a more heterodox path. Not that Max wasn't already quite heterodox of a thinker, but it led us down a, a different, perhaps, journey that than we might have been on. Because yeah, I think it's, it speaks to the idea of journalism, that the story needs to be told, and you tell a story that you have. And the story is that here we are in this location, and here's the guest, and this is the truth as we are, are as we see it, as the facts are coming in 
right now. This is what journalism is. It does journalism. I think in American journalism, they completely have forgotten what the whole point of journalism is. You're supposed to be opening a window into the world and not having putting opinions really on the side to, to, to a large degree, but to present the facts and to be unbiased. Hmm. And so that this was, this was interesting because then since we became journalists in this sense, we, it's, it's interesting to see how journalism plays around the world and how recently it has taken an interesting turn in different regions and in different venues and things like that. But so we started off, I think, saying like we were storytellers and then we became journalists. And mm -hmm. that kind of led us to Bitcoin in that Bitcoin, John Matonis contacted Stacy and said, have you heard of this thing called Bitcoin? We watch your show. We like the fact that you're very open and forthcoming and your take on gold and the economy is without bias. And so he came in and we did a show on Bitcoin. This was 2011 mm -hmm. when, when Bitcoin was a dollar. And then for me, it immediately clicked because back in 1996, I had invented a virtual currency for the Hollywood Stock Exchange that I started up back in 1996. And so I saw immediately the aspect to it where they're trying to create distributed scarcity or digital scarcity. But in, in the problem with the technologies at that time were that they were all centralized, digital scarcity platforms for various gaming platforms and things like that. So th with Bitcoin, it's distributed digital scarcity. And that was just a huge leap in the whole concept of a, of a virtual currency. And so we immediately, a continuation of what I was, had been doing, and also going back to Wall Street as well, because Wall Street in the 80s was a period of was rapid experimentation because of in the late 70s was the introduction of discounts, discounting on Wall Street. So you had Charles Schwab and others came around and the whole old boy network of Wall Street was upset, was dis disrupted. And they had to scramble to find out how to make more business. So this was an era of the 80s with new products and Mike Milken and leveraged buyouts and original issued junk bonds and package, a lot of package goods, package bonds, package securities, splitting securities, repackaging securities, just to create products to sell at a premium to compete with these discount brokerages out there. And, and so that led to the Hollywood Stock Exchange, and then that led to Bitcoin. So I'd say I've been kicking around this business for 35 years now. I also <laughs> want to add that, that notion of that w by the fact that the orthodox, the, the keepers of the orthodoxy, the, the elite, as it were, because we got basically shut out by them because Al Jazeera was determined by the U.S. government to be bad at that time. Now, obviously, the liberals in America love Al Jazeera. But at that time, they were feared it and vilified it, and they, they didn't want anything to do with us. So we went into the gold sector not one single gold person ever said no to us appearing on the show. We accumulated gold at $250. It went up to $1,200 within four years. So by that time, we Bitcoin, because we were talking so much about gold, John Matonis, that sort of cypherpunk uh, movement already heard of us and knew of us as down with the central banks. These bankers are corrupt, blah, blah, blah. So they already knew about us. We We were like, the whales of Bitcoin at that time, especially because we had so much gold. 
And, but then we got in early on Bitcoin as well because of all basically censorship prior to that, like that the orthodoxy did not want to hear this. They didn't want to hear about gold. They didn't want to hear about then Bitcoin. It was good to have, you could think of, you could be demoralized and depressed and just give up when you have barriers put in your place, you know, that the orthodoxy are against you and the elite hate you and they try to stop you or deplatform you. But it often ends up opening up other avenues. If you think of all of Africa, you think of Nigeria, the second deepest penetration of Bitcoin. Why? Because they're not the, the elite of the global financial system. It's not like they hate them. They just don't want to be bothered with them. So they don't want to do the work to include them in the global uh, settlements layer. So they're early Bitcoiners. The cypherpunks, they, they were also involved in bringing encryption to the masses mm -hmm. and using a lot of shrewd ways to using uh, freedom of information, freedom of the press, et cetera, to, to get the encryption technology out there into the public domain. And for me, and then Wall Street, my people ask me, when did you, you like become anti Wall Street? But I, there's never been a, a question of that. It's just been about passing along some of these tricks to the community that they may not have known how they can disrupt the situation. Because in the long run, like a lot Wall Street bets, what they're doing is they're adding a lot of price discovery to the market. They're doing something highly beneficial if you believe in free markets, because there should be the best price discovery as possible. And so that's my interest. And it's always been my interest. And it's just whether it's journalists hiding the truth, whether it's Wall Street hiding the fraud, or whether it's the Pentagon hiding encryption, all of these things had to be forced open. If there, if the desire is to have equanimity and justice and virtue and things that we have, we hold in high regard. So th that, that clear, that's always been my interest purely from the point of view of wanting to be perpetually fascinated. The thing about particularly in the Wall Street business is that wealth can bring a lot of intellectual stupefaction. If you notice people who have a lot of wealth tend to get stupid. Because that's the best way to protect your wealth is to put a shield of stupidity out there. Like when you see on CNBC hedge funds crying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> th this is a, their fake stupidity, right? But th this is a learned tactic that people, people adapt and adopt after time. And it, it's unseemly in a lot of ways and it's very inauthentic and it's hard to be around. I, I prefer to be, you know, in the mob, like seeking a more equitable, outcome. That's more interesting. It's more fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's more fascinating. Yeah, it's still something to fight for in a way. It makes sense to, to do it for your own sake in a way, like for your being content and adding something to the world. Yeah, I just like to be entertained. <laughs> you know. And what... Yeah, what you said in 2011, you heard from John Matonis about Bitcoin. And what was the, the breakthrough for you, the history of virtual or digital currencies? And what was the sign for you that this now is really an approach that is going to work? So just, well, it, it tell you, to tell you the truth, it's not a eureka moment. I think that's the, a common error people make is that they're going to have that eureka moment. It's a process. Now, the Bitcoin is a process that can take many months or years to fully 
embrace. It, it can, once you start looking at it, it pulls you in. But I don't think it was any, it's a process that takes time. And because you have to let go of so much of the familiar things that you have in your head and, and that you believe, you have to go away from those things. You have to relearn a lot of stuff. And you have to have faith that what you're learning is going to work. Yeah, up until Michael Saylor bought his huge quantity of Bitcoin, I think everybody in Bitcoin kind of half thought they were nuts. But Michael Saylor actually, it was a huge sigh of relief. Because mm -hmm. up until that moment, it was not clear whether we all were nuts. But first, Paul Tudor Jones got into it. And I'm like, okay, that's good. He's a high-profile guy. He does his due diligence. I've known him from Wall Street, known him for 30 years. That's a very good vote of confidence. I can see now how Bitcoin is going gonna, is gonna to invade all capital markets. But then when Michael Saylor got into it, it's okay, that we can, we can I, our job is done. The people who are in it from 2011 <laughs> to 2020, we're panning the ball to Michael Saylor and Elon Musk and whoever else is going to come in, in this year. Our job as the pioneers uh, is finished. I also don't. For, for me, like what happened to me in 2011, as like I had booked John Matonis, John Matonis came in, we, we did the interview, Max, obviously, as a as an inventor himself of, of virtual of digital currencies, understood on a technical level what was going on than, more than I did. But as a storyteller and some and an entertainer, and that's my background working in Hollywood films, working in Hollywood television, working for the BBC, working for film sales. The number one thing you look at, the data point, is the audience response, right? So the audience responded to that John Matonis interview with such hostility. There was people in there screaming, shrieking, calling it shitcoin. And that was in, I believe it was April of 2011 that it aired. So they were so upset. <laughs> And I might have just, oh, that's another thing on this catalog of things we've covered over two years. And yet the people were so angry that in the two years of making the show at that point, I, I was like, what on earth are they so angry about? This is so weird. And so it prompted me to want to know more about it. And then I booked Amir Taki and uh, mm -hmm. he came on and then the hate got even bigger. And mm -hmm. I was like, so I'm, I suppose you could call me like stubborn and ornery. Like the fact that the people were getting so angry with me kept me going down that road that maybe I might not have. Like uh, uh, if they had just been like benign, Hey, that's interesting. Cool. Good story. Mm -hmm. And it said they were like, what are you covering this scam for? And I remember one of the first comments ever on that April show, they were like, there's 21 million coins and it's $2. Look at it. Somebody scammed all these people out of $40 million. This is a joke. And I was like, oh, okay. I got to go deeper down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, with people like Michael Saylor coming in, don't you have the feeling or maybe the fear that the spirit of Bitcoin being an open financial instrument for everybody, money from the people, for the people, that this might be lost in the future when all those institutions and billionaires are coming in that might say, okay, yeah, we let's do all those regulations because we need them to do it. It, to have it like an asset and a financial instrument. Is this not a, a fear that there might be? No, because a couple of things. First of all, you had in 2017 the New York Agreement and the attempt to co-op Bitcoin, which was handily rejected, and the nodes won, the network won, and it shows that the immutability of the 
Bitcoin and the soul of Bitcoin and where the power of Bitcoin actually is. It's in the distributed network. And it was in that corporate move was, was pushed back. And it was that move that Michael Saylor saw where he had seen it in 2013 and he didn't come in 2013. He didn't really spend a lot of time with it. And then after that 2017 episode, that's what really got his attention. That's when he, he thought of it in terms of cyber hornets. He thought about it as this resilient uh, network and he has a background in technology and he's a scientist. And then suddenly all the layers of the stack, like I said, you can be introduced to Bitcoin. It's not necessarily a eureka moment. It's a slow burn. It's, wait a minute, a lot of stuff I've been thinking is true is actually false. It takes time. So it took him several years. But then once he starts to see into that stack and you start to see all the layers that are working, he started to get very excited by it. But we need to have, here's the fact, the, the, the Bitcoin vector is on its own vector and it's going to eat all capital markets. So it'll eat silver, it'll eat gold, it'll eat all fiat. There's a $300 trillion total addressable market for Bitcoin. So it's got a 300x potential move from here. And it's going to take everybody in. It's going to take every CEO, every money manager, every politician, everybody who's anywhere is going to be pulled into it because for, for all those attributes that that make it. And to this week, it's Michael Saylor. And then next month, it could be sovereign wealth fund that's going to put half a trillion into Bitcoin. Uh, then we're going to see central banks and it's just going to keep gobbling up the world. It's going to just take, it's a black hole that nothing can escape. And having perfect money like this is the end of human evolution. You could say we've been evolving to this moment now for millions of years. And we finally have reached that moment when the evolutionary arc of humans has reached perfect money. And, and that is where, that's the moment that we're at. This, our generations are incredibly to witness this. Think, think of all mm -hmm. the million, 200,000 years since human, since Homo sapien walked out of Africa. And then, okay, you can take evolution back further than that. All that has all been going on for this moment. So we're the ones that actually see the end of the movie, which is incredible. And the, the way evolution happens is almost like magic. If you've ever watched like documentary series on how things evolve, it's like, Suddenly, oh, it would be awesome if they had some legs to crawl out of the ocean because then this one's going to survive. And suddenly legs pop up and you're like, how did those pop up? And the same thing happened with Bitcoin. It seems like it was so weird that it almost seems like some sort of intelligent design that it targeted Max, got Max and Stacey and Kaiser report, which at that time, remember in 2011, it's, it wasn't like Twitter was very well developed and there was a huge Bitcoin community on there and that you had all these podcasts because podcasting internet connections were still dodgy back then. I even remember doing early Kaiser reports where people had dial-up speeds and it was impossible to do talks like this. And now, before we get on to the second part of the show, a short message from local Bitcoins, the fact of the week. To purchase one Bitcoin, you need to pay more than 50,000 US dollars at the moment. This is a lot of money for most people in the world. Luckily, also Satoshis are Bitcoin. Satoshi is a fraction unit of one Bitcoin. One Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million Satoshis. So with 5 US dollars, you can get around 10,000 Satoshis. Even though the price of one Bitcoin sounds expensive, because of Satoshis, everybody is welcome to purchase some. 
The unit of Satoshi is named after the Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. Did you know that the name Satoshi is a Japanese male name and it means clear-thinking, quick-witted and wise? Thanks for the fact of the week by Local Bitcoins. Our show was distributed to 120 countries and dubbed into Spanish. So it went everywhere. So think of that fair distribution, that very early distribution that happened. We meet people all the time in almost every single country you can imagine that they bought Bitcoin or they earned it or got it somehow back in 2011, back in 2012, back in 2013. That would not have happened had it just been exclusive to some English speaking markets and some European markets, but it's so deep and widely distributed a lot to do that we were one of part of it. And there were others, of course, but I think it just seems almost by design that it was like getting out there to certain communities that were interested in our kind of content of global insurrection against banker occupation, siding with the people, down with the banks. It got to all the that sort of mindset all over the world. And I think that was a good thing. Yeah, I remember that Economist magazine, I believe, when they were covering Bitcoin, the cover story, it said it was the truth machine. It could have been Time magazine in, in the U.S. It was The Economist. Okay, The Truth Machine. Okay, combine that with my with the mandate of journalism, telling the truth. Yeah. We always basically, I'm just telling you the truth about Bitcoin. It is the truth machine, and, and it's never <clears throat> let me down. We've never had an instance where it has been flawless for since its creation, since the Genesis block, really. It's been operating flawlessly. And the fact that we got Michael Saylor in there and Elon Musk, and so... It's, it is very fascinating because the, we've never had a few things like this, like separation of money and state. That's never happened before. And we've never had money that you couldn't obtain through coercion or violence. All other money before this, whether it's paper money or gold or whatever, it, you can steal it, you can coerce it, you can violently obtain it, you can confiscate it. This is the first money ever in history that's unconfiscatable. The only way you can get it is if you we do a deal peacefully. You come to me peacefully and say, I got a, a work of art. I'll trade you some Bitcoin for it. And we're seeing yes, that. I could put a gun to your head and say, now tell me your seat. Not with a multi-sig wallet over there at Casa. It's set up in a way that <laughs> would make that scenario virtually impossible. And if so, the, the government then goes to Casa and says, give me the multi-sig of this and that person? It, it's unlisted on their servers. They don't have it. They hit de delete. It, it's auto-delete. They don't have it. It goes into a fail-safe system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is what Or even, you, you could say, there are loads of multi-sig locations, and they're going to have to figure out if you have eight of ten signatures required, and you have one in Iceland, one in Russia... One in China, one in Argentina, one yeah, in Mexico. Plus when you have who this are they, how are they going to go to uh, any Russian? How are they going to go to any Chinese person or any mm. other non-extradition country and say, hey, give us your shit? They're going to say, <laughs> here, <laughs> yeah. go home. Yeah. Not, not everybody obeys the U.S. government. Mm. When you have this shift in consciousness, also it's a total global shift in consciousness. So it fiat money monetizes violence and war. Bitcoin monetizes peace and love. So it's a, just a completely, that's again, I'm saying the evolution has reached the finality. This is the grand finale of why we were put on this earth. This is that we're living it. And so what that, that consciousness shift is demonetizing violence. 
and that has is, is going to uh, is going to fade away essentially because it's no longer a good strategy. Violence is a good strategy if you can print lots of money and you can invade countries with lots of natural resources that are not well defended. Okay, that's a good strategy. I can print money, build bombs, kill people, take their natural resources, right? That's America's foreign policy. Now, yeah, you give them a loan and then they have to pay the debt back and they are basically your debt slaves then. Right, Confessions yeah. of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. That was his role. He went into these countries, particularly in Latin America, and threw leaders out of airplanes because they weren't paying back their loans. He's very upfront about it. He, he himself did not. He would tell them that if they did not take his loan from, yeah, the, yeah. from the U.S. government, yeah. that yeah. there would be another guy from the U.S. government agencies that uh, they would not want to see, but they might end up <laughs> being thrown out of an airplane if they don't take them. And they were. Things, Some were thrown out of airplanes. Like that, these things to happen. Yeah. So now, and I think with the sailors of the world and Elon Musk, right, that they're moving us toward where a country is going to announce it's got key reserves in Bitcoin. And then geopolitics is going to be completely changed. It's going to enter the hash race. People, the countries are going to be now not banning Bitcoin. They're going to be like, how do we acquire Bitcoin? We need to get as much Bitcoin as possible. We're going to mine for it. We're going to hoard it, whatever. So that's really the most likely outcome, not a ban. I also want to point out, because of the game theory involved in Bitcoin and the fact that there won't be any more than 21 million coins, that there's no um, incentive at all for Michael Saylor to acquire too many Bitcoin because the value is in the network. So if Alakanani can't own Bitcoin, then it reduces Michael Saylor's own investment in Bitcoin. There is an, a game theory going on that level as well. If you had 21 million Bitcoin, if Anita, if you owned it all, how much would it be worth? <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the game exactly theory, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's in every layer of the stack. And that's basically also reason why people should self-custody because their Bitcoin cannot be rehypothecated, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Rehypothecation is always a problem in the fiat money derivative world. In the case of the UK, for example, in the city of London, they have infinite rehypothecation is not illegal. You can sell the same <laughs> bond an infinite number of times. You can put it on an infinite number of balance sheets. There's no limit. In the mm -hmm. U.S., there is a limit, but that's why U.S. banks outsource a lot of what they do to the city of London because the city of London, the regulations are fit, favor the kind of problems and abuses that we've seen. So there's all this back and forth going on. It's interesting now because of Brexit, it's actually now a very different situation. For example, most of the stock trading now has moved from London to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. and so it's gone to continental Europe. And so the, now there's this turf war about what's left of the financial pie and who's going to trade what. And uh, But right into that mix comes Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to defund a lot of what's going on in these banks. So these banks are basically going to be go extinct. Yeah, but what tells us that in Bitcoin, these things won't happen. As you said, the Wall Street bets thing was also the hedge funds and institutions were naked shorting the stocks and they didn't even have them. That's what I understand. Right, naked shorts, yeah. They sold more stock than, than they uh, existed. Existed, exactly. But uh, why can't uh, those institutions do that in the future with Bitcoin too? 
They, it, there's a couple of answers to that. The first answer is the self-custody issue that you just brought up. So all the Ponzi schemes that are influencing price through naked short selling and other schemes have at their base of that scheme a security of some type. Like, for example, infinite rehypothecation, it starts with uh, a treasury note. You can't re infinitely rehypothecate nothing. You have to infinitely rehypothecate a treasury note, right? So there's a note at the bottom of that huge Ponzi scheme. Uh, with your self-custody of keys, you're taking away that base layer. So you can't do the huge Ponzi scheme. So number one, that's why claim your keys every January 3rd. That movement speaks to that to get rid of the uh, rehypothecation of it. Proof the, of the, keys. Proof of key. Mm -hmm. The second reason is that what we see in the gold market is collusion amongst central banks. And that's been documented. And our friend Nomi Prince wrote a book about it called Collusion. And they work together. And the reason that collusion works, that cartel, is that they're, they're, they're all willing to make six or 7% by manipulating the gold price on any given week with the knowledge that the, the possibility of one of them breaking the cartel and going out on their own is limited because the upside for gold is somewhat limited. So you, so in members of that gold cartel, whenever they're participating in that market manipulation of gold, they're constantly thinking to themselves, well, I could just go against these guys on my own and go long when they're all short. I can make a lot of money, but that would be a very short-term gain because then the cartel would kick you out and then you would not be entitled to future gains. And the reason why uh, that doesn't happen is because the steady income from a slow manipulation in the gold cartel is worth it versus the short-term burst of a, making the gold price, let's say, go up 10% in a week and ban banking that gain. Now, let's look at Bitcoin for a second. It, the the cartel is very it's it's not going to happen because at any given moment Bitcoin could triple in price, and that's a risk that nobody's going to take. The upside is still a hundred x from here. And and fundamentally, uh, the collateral right. It is very easy for Anita for you to validate your own uh, transactions, validate, hold your own coins. For a bar of gold, if you have $100,000 worth of gold, it's expensive to store. It's heavy. It's hard to uh, secure. You can't like just bring it in your house. There, You need to have it insured by Brinksmat is the only one that could deliver it. And you have to make sure it's real gold and it's not some fake gold. And it's just, they, they count on the fact that it's just too difficult for all the alleged owners of the allocated gold. They tell you what your, your bar number is, but unless you go into the vaults and go down into the New York Fed, 30 stories down and go look at it and make sure it's there. It's very, very uh, time consuming, uh, expensive process. Whereas Bitcoin, we can all, you could check my transaction. Max can check it, every, the blockchain. We could all do it. So that's also makes it very difficult to do these as you're like with the, the naked short selling, what they're allowed a certain number of days until they can settle. Like they could explain how that there's a, a gap of days, whereas there's yeah. a gap of 10 minutes at most in Bitcoin where you could d defraud the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The naked short selling under regulation show, SHO, you're required to reconcile those trades within a certain period of time. It's something like 10 days, 11 days. It changes all the time. And uh, the problem is that the regulators don't enforce reg show. 
So a lot of these, in the case of Melvin Capital and their naked shorts of GameStop, they had these naked shorts on for more than a year, two years, because the regulators never enforce reg show because the regulators are corrupt. That's the bottom line. But I'll tell you what's happening right now in Bitcoin with the $50,000 price is that we know for a fact that traders are using Signal and other encrypted messaging apps to manipulate markets. This comes out every couple of weeks. There's a new scandal like, oh, we just busted 20 traders and we're going to fine them for that. But they, they don't, doesn't stop. So what happens around the world right now is that a year ago or so, a lot of these guys put on shorts at 50,000 bucks, thinking that was a, a good, a good trade because the prop, they were, they didn't believe that it would get to that level. So now it's pushing 50,000. So what's happening is the, these guys are on the phone, they're on their apps all over the world, and they're out working at banks. And they're like, let's all pile on with shorts right now and drive this thing down. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the upside is too explosive because you can go to 500,000 in a few days. So they can't organize the cartel. So what happens is that 50,000, this happens every 10,000, 10,000, 20, 30, 40, now we're at 50. It'll happen at 100,000. It'll happen at a million. They're all going to be sitting around. Do we jam it? Do we jam it? And there's, they're never going to get it because there's going to be a guy out there who's, this thing's going to triple. <laughs> Fuck you guys. I'm not, I'm, I'm out. I'm covering right now. I'm covering. And then they all cover. Then they all cover, of course, because no, nobody wants to stand in the way of that. And then, oh, oh, now it's at 55,000. Oh, it's at 56,000. And they're like, oh shit, now what? So this is just the whole process that's mm-hmm. been going on now for years. And it's going to c- continue for several years more, particularly when the cost of money is zero. You can borrow money at zero and you can short. And if you get a cartel going, it's a hundred percent guaranteed profit, like in the gold business. That's a guaranteed way to make money is by manipulating the gold price. But the Bitcoin is too damn explosive. It's like trying to pass around nitroglycerin with a bunch of people on a in the middle of the ocean on a very unstable boat. Plus, like, plus it's only it's audited every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And just like think of any classic heist film, like they always that's one of the tropes of it. You've got 7 minutes exactly and they have a timer like you got to get in and out in those 7 minutes or else we're dead. That's the same thing that's going on with Bitcoin. It's like in the financial markets, all that fraud and manipulation can happen because markets close at four. They've got all the way until 930 in the morning to uh, cover up all their mistakes that they did, dump their their losses in somebody else's pocketbook. We had the Repo 104 scandal during the 2008, 2009, 2010 financial crisis, whereby, you know, uh, to deal with American accounting laws, they you know, sold all their bad debts and stuff like that and hid it over in London for the night and then uh, took it back the next day. So at the end of the day, their books were always clean, but in the morning, all the dirt would come back. So you can't do that in Bitcoin. You can't, it's 24 seven, even on Christmas day, even on Easter, every single sacred holiday, it's trading and there's auditing every 10 minutes. They're looking Mm -hmm. at you. And so you have that 10 minutes with which to try to get something, some devious scheme away, away, but then it's over. You have to restart. Yeah, to follow up on that point, every brokerage account firm, every office has what's called an error account. Mm. So during the course of a business day at any brokerage firm, there's a lot of mistakes are made. People give the wrong account numbers. People, the trades are broken. Just a lot of things go wrong. So you have a lot of errors. And they go into the error account. It's not. It's never accounted on the P&L of that 
office or that firm. And then what happens is, this is why on Wall Street, when you have IPOs, you always see pops of 20, 30, 40%. And people say, oh, you mispriced that deal. You gave, you, you should have priced it better. And the, the answer is no. The, the IPO pop at 20 or 30% is always used to launder all the mistakes in the error account. That's been the system for years and years. Mm-hmm. And th- th- when you, again, when you see this up, up close and you just see how these, things go on. My thought with all the work in terms of Karma Bank, Crash JP Morgan, Bitcoin, has always been like, the whole system is fragile. (laughs) I know how fragile it is. And there's a way to hack it. There's a lot of ways to hack it. If you're interested in getting a different outcome, there's tons and tons of ways to hack the system. And if you have the masses, and the thing that we have now, we do have now Robinhood accounts, and we have an online community, and we do have masses of online presence now who can really, the, the economies of scale now in 2021 are really, really at a point now where they, the, the Robin Hood mentality uh, of that, those hackers, those players can now really change the dynamic where the price discovery is now definitely changing now from institutions and hedge funds. It's now shifting now to this new reality. Robin Hood, by the way, does not sell you Bitcoin. Anybody out there who thinks they're buying Bitcoin on there, they do not sell you Bitcoin. It's fake Bitcoin. If you're going to buy Bitcoin, use Swan Bitcoin or use Cash App or use any other one that actually allows you to take it off. But also, again, if you want to play in stocks, but know that over the past 20, 30 years, because of this fraudulent system and setup, all of the profits are made after the markets are closed for retail. So if that tells you all you need to know is like you're playing in a rigged game if you want to give them money. And yes, certainly there are uh, opportunities to earn money in equities, but but the majority of the profits will go to those who can trade in the after hours. You can't trade in the after hours, the, the ordinary schmo for the most part. Yeah, and I also heard that Robin Hood, the platform, is basically selling the data of the trades to the hedge funds so they can they know the price or the the development earlier than all the retail people. Yep. Sure. Yeah. But as Max pointed out, the game is heavily rigged in the house's favor, but there are many vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And that's what like these uh, Wall Street bets sort of people there's enough of uh, former real options traders and stuff like that that give these guys ideas on how to do this, how to take down the system. So mm-hmm. um, yes, a mass of people able to only buy most Americans had a $1,200 to throw around because they got sent a check. So you give a hundred million Americans $1,200 that they could take against targeted campaign against one multi-billionaire. Well, it, it, they become equals then. Now we were talking about the price. You, Max, you said at the beginning of the year, you think Bitcoin will hit 220,000 US dollars, I think, this year. What I would be interested in is what are the most interesting data points you are looking at, like daily maybe or weekly, I don't know. Which charts are you analyzing to come up with those price predictions and also with the development of Bitcoin in the next months or years? Right. I'm looking, number one, at the US dollar. So I see Stan Druckenmiller just came out. He's very negative on the dollar. And remember, I'm saying Bitcoin and dollar price, $220,000. So mm-hmm. the bulk of that, of my prediction is based on the dollar getting cut in half in 2021. So plus add on top of that, just the normal adoption rate, curve rate, post having 
you, you generally see a multi seven, eight, nine X return after each having and the historical norms in this case. Mm-hmm. You add that to a collapsing dollar and you end up with $220,000 a coin in 2021. Also, we also look at asset classes. It's going to take out silver first, then it goes for gold, then it goes for treasuries, the size of those markets because they're listed as their value somewhere. So Bitcoin will be bigger than silver pretty soon here in the next couple of months. And so at 220000 it puts it at roughly 50% the valuation of gold. So mm-hmm. you can look at those. You could also look at the, you know what? I look at the numbers every morning. I go mm-hmm. to my Zap wallet for the development of Bitcoin. And mm-hmm. I look at how much I'm earning from our podcast on Sphinx Chat. That's, it's 83,000 Satoshis I have there. But I follow, like those 83,000 Satoshis don't seem like much, but it just, it, it excites me that sort of where it's going. These are, that's like the early days of Bitcoin when, so you had a QT wallet downloaded on your computer and it blew up and you lost those 40 Bitcoin or whatever. And oh, this is that same sort of the stage as you're watching it being birthed. You're watching it erupt into the world. And mm-hmm. when this thing finally takes off, like once, once it hits critical mass and once all the user interface and it, it's just going to replace so much of the infrastructure of our culture and society around us that like all the media consumption, all mm-hmm. the online consumption we do will be through this sort of thing. Yeah, streaming Satoshis is really powerful. It's something that's been talked about since the dawn of internet age is that people should get paid to watch ads. People should get paid to be interacting on the internet and not giving everything away for free and being spied on all day. This is streaming Satoshis and with Sphinx Chat. It's exactly that, exactly what is going on here. Yeah, I get so excited. I'm like, oh my God, we made 5,000 Satoshis on that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I've all, I also run my tribe on uh, Sphinx. So, do you have your own node at home? Or yeah, 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 yeah. We we have Which a one? tribe on on Sphinx. It's Orange Pill. Yeah, great. And yeah, it's fascinating to see the Satoshis uh, coming in. Yeah, and also the boosting is fun because you can uh, basically boost segments of the podcast. You know it, but or listen. No, I don't. Know. I didn't know you could boost segments. Oh. Who hooked us up was Adam Curry. Who? Yeah. Is- yeah. Podfather, right? Like he is one of the early um, pioneers of the podcasting space. Max and I, we told you when we first started in the 2003 in the south of France, what we, the content we created was a radio show. It was a podcast essentially from our kitchen, but there was no podcasting then. There was no Mm -hmm. RSS to, there was no way to feed it. So we had to upload it and provide a link to people to download. And we had to try to keep it under four megabytes because most people had dial-up. So it, had, it would take 10 minutes to download a four megabyte file. Those were the days. Anyway, today, like full circle, almost mm. 20 years later, 18 years later, exactly. We see Adam Curry spending a few hours with us, helping us to set us up with Sphinx Chat. And he's doing a lot of work on that podcasting end on Lightning. So He's got a load of new developments coming out soon and announcements to come out in the next uh, month or two. A lot of exciting stuff going on. Yeah, I'm also um, trying to shift my podcast from my self-hosted WordPress plugin to maybe Castopod because I think they already have included the new namespace tags that you need for podcasting 2.0. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's great for all kinds of content creators to earn 
micropayments finally. Yeah. So it will change, I think, the whole dynamic also of content creation. And I hope that we can go back a little bit from this ad-driven model that we need to use if we want to earn some money. So we were talking to Nick Batia and because Bitcoin is the first innovation in layer one money in 5,000 years, it's essentially enabled us all to be like a Medici. And like Medici, you can create an amazing renaissance. You can create something that's going to be remembered a thousand years in the future. These, speaking of Medici, speaking of the wealthy, how they live, why they maintain their wealth is income streams. You've got to have passive income streams and also capital gains. Well, Bitcoin delivers that to everybody around the world. So if you could have multiple sat streams all over the place, maybe... 5,000 Satoshis, if that's all you're getting, that's not much, but maybe one day it'll be worth even more. So you're just looking for these streams coming in for all the content you already provide. Look at all the Silicon Valley giants. Like they're worth, the CEOs are worth tens of billions on their own. The companies are worth uh, close to a trillion dollars. You're providing all that value to them. That mm -hmm. They're just monetizing you. If you can just take it back, and Satoshi's instead. And that's what the, the, the companies that in the Bitcoin world built on second layer, whether it's on Lightning or Liquid or any other second layer technologies that emerge or third layer technologies, you're going to see that as you're going to be offered more participation. And it's not just going to be the Zuckerbergs of the world who get to collect a hundred billion dollars in their own personal wealth and hundreds of billions of more for shareholders. It's going to be, we're going to be the, the shareholders. Yeah, what we're saying with evolution, that was developing as an ecosystem of global consciousness where the micropayments are being shared at such a velocity and the cost of things crash down to bare mm. zero. And what you end up with is photosynthesis almost. Photosynthesis is price discovery of carbon turned into oxygen on the green leaf. So that's a perfect market, frictionless perfect market where both sides are equally mutually benefit. So I figure micropayments on Satoshis and everyone is streaming everywhere to everyone. You end up with huge velocity of Satoshis and peaceful trade, no coercion, and total efficiencies of energy use. And you have this ecosystem of the human consciousness. So then all fears are dissipated. And in the vacuum comes enormous amount of love. Love is an untapped resource. It's considered it's not present to the extent that it could be once you get rid of fear. Mm -hmm. So fear associated with deprivation, isolation, fear of violence. When you remove all that, you and, and by streaming Satoshis in a global consciousness you, ecosystem, you could, then we have this burst of love. The operative word there for me was velocity, because one thing, if you look at the fiat system we have, there's a huge amount, a huge quantity of money printing, but almost zero velocity because mm -hmm. the system is dead. It all goes to the same, you know, like 20 corporations, banks that hold all it, hoard it. They don't spread it around. Look at that. Look at all, look at this velocity of sats coming through there. <laughs> Just it's page after page of micropayments being you know sent to us for every minute they're listening to this podcast. You're getting yeah. more. Let's say my eyeglasses were kitted out with a camera and this is set up to my streaming Satoshis. 
and somebody somewhere wants to look, see what I'm seeing, because I'm traveling in Paris, and they're over there in Antarctica or someplace. So they stream Satoshis to me to stream into my vision, and that gets credited to my wallet totally passively, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Just an infinite number of applications can be thought about this. There's no end, there's no end to it. Well, even mm-hmm. like with the development, you could see in the future of Sphinx Chat because you could, you could, you know how you can say, say you get a certain income, a hundred percent of it goes into the the pot. You can take a hundred percent, or you could take seventy percent. Twenty percent goes to your editor. Ten percent mm-hmm. goes to that. What about in the future using via that? Like you get a sponsored content, you you get paid a hundred thousand dollars worth of Satoshi, say. You could choose to give some to your audience because they're giving you the value. You could give these micro payments to the longer they watch it, the more they get paid. Obviously, then you get some spam bots and, and they try to collect some money. But there are ways to, in the future, where you'll be able to, that sort of, you're being monetized. You're already worth a huge amount of money to Hollywood. You're already worth a huge amount of money to Silicon Valley. There, there hopefully will be a way that we could then just pay these, the audience for their participation. Yeah, we already know the economics of of intangible intellectual property. We already know what the monetary value of that is. It's in the trillions of dollars. So now we're just going to grab it, put it into the collective consciousness and stream sats. So we don't need Hollywood to go out there and wastefully make a movie for $350 million to watch Tom Cruise do the exact same stunt he's now done in the last 10 movies. We don't need that. We don't need a... Godzilla at a $150 million build-out, Godzilla Part 12. I saw the original Godzilla. It's still the best Godzilla. I don't need <laughs> Godzilla Part 12. It's a funny Godzilla. <laughs> well, it's entertaining as, entertaining yeah. as fuck. That's all wasted. But it, nevertheless, the economics exists on intangibles, on intellectual property. Because we already moved beyond tangible economics. That was done already with the information age, we went from the industrial age to the information age in, the, in the, mm. really the 60s and the 70s with the microchip and bandwidth and storage and everything that makes up our digital age. So now that digital age, w- once it disrupted money with Bitcoin, so now it's just going to, everything is going to go to Bitcoin. So that means the efficiencies across the board are going to go into Bitcoin efficiencies and the Bitcoin coefficient is zero. It's everything goes to zero. It's not mm-hmm. just the price of microchip goes to zero. Everything goes to zero. So the but there is a delta, and that delta is love, and that can feed the world if you're streaming Satoshi's in the global consciousness. I feel a little bit remembered. Do you know this interview with David Bowie in 1999 where he's talking about the internet and the interviewer is just, what What does you he's talking about? Yeah, And David Bowie, he describes the internet and everything that came after him. And <clears throat> I'm reminded of that now. I think it's also such a moment. Yeah, the internet at that time, I was running a dot-com at that time and you had... Uh, John Perry Barlow, who wrote the uh, Declaration of in- in- Independence for Cyberspace. And there was an, a tremendous feeling of it was going to herald in a new age of openness and freedom. And, mm-hmm. but it unfortunately became, everything became HBO. It's all pay to play. <laughs> and uh, the copyright laws were extended and uh, the garden became walled. And uh, that trend is with us still. Uh, Bitcoin, though, because it, reinvents money itself from scratch and gives us money that we made ourselves. This is the first time money has been separated from state. It's the first time ever. I was thinking recently that the Gandhi, when he was marching to the sea to make salt, that simple act 
essentially was emblematic of taking down the empire. We make our own money for ourselves. We don't need the state. So the mm-hmm. state is obsolete. We don't need the central bank. It's obsolete. We don't need commercial banks. We don't need Wall Street banks. They're, they're now obsolete. We don't need them. So they're all going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And that frees up an enormous velocity. Again, velocity is going to be freed up. Like there's going to be the conscious, the collective unconscious even. Forget about the collective consciousness, but the collective unconscious, what Jung talks about is it's on a, it's coming. It's going to be quite startling. And we get glimpses into it when we see, let's say, fine works of art or something like this. We're moved. The fear leaves our body suddenly and we're filled with love. The emotional feeling we see when we have a glimpse into that wormhole that is the collective unconscious, which is pure love. Imagine that 24-7 with streaming sats. Okay, that's where we're heading. And it's happening very quickly. 50,000, the price is... It, the price doesn't say anything except how much closer we are to the epiphany. Mm-hmm. And with Easter coming up, I, I would imagine <laughs> Easter Sunday this year is going to be powerful, very powerful, very powerful. I'm going to make that prediction on this show right here. Easter <laughs> Sunday 2021 was going to be the, one of the most powerful days in human history. Satoshi will rise again. There's going to be an epiphany. It's going to be remarkable. And the price is going to gap 20,000 points in one hour. We will see. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Let's come to an end. I have one question of one of my listeners. We were talking about the future. What are some recommendations for the today gen sets? What kind of career would you start if you were 18 or 20 again today? So Gen Z, what would you do if you were Gen Z right now? I personally... When I look at 18 and 19-year-olds right now, they are just way ahead of what we were at that age. I just, they're so much uh, more lit and with it and have a great disrespect for uh, authority. And it's pretty amazing. They are more like that 4chan sort of generation where they're just like, Flick, a, a, a healthy disregard for authority. And I think that's really needed right now as authority has begun to disintegrate rapidly. It started, I think, in 1971, really, when we, the U.S. went off the gold standard. But it's really accelerating now, and there's no use trying to keep it alive anyway. My generation, when I was their age, like it was like that. there was no alternative, we thought, and it was you might make some riches or whatever, keeping propping up the system and being able to load your debt onto some other generation down the line. That's over. There are no more generations to roll your debt onto. It's too big. So you might as well just get on the Bitcoin bandwagon and yeah, don't get attached to the system that's about to disappear. It might actually disappear by the end of 2021. I would say that if you're in your teen years and you're pretty healthy still, you haven't been corrupted too much You need two things. You need to defrag and partition your brain. And the way to do that is with philosophy. Mm. So as you get older, you get a torrent of information. And unless you know how to organize it, you're going to miss it. Philosophy is how you organize information in your brain. So starting with Aristotle and moving forward, learn how to defrag and partition your mind so that the information you get you can categorize it, sort it, store it, and use it. 
and stuff that you comes into your brain that's useless, you can get rid of it quickly. So you don't end up, when you're 30 years old, having a brain full of useless shit and having missed all the good stuff. Then you got you, you never get started. It always starts with philosophy. That's the beginning of everything. Also study Socrates and Plato, who came before Aristotle. Don't just start from Aristotle. Fine and dandy. <laughs> well, I, have, I have an affinity for Aristotle, but nevertheless. <laughs> he is you know. the most important, I think, for Bitcoin and money and understanding narrative. And right. He, 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 he decided what made perfect money at the time, which we still mm -hmm. use today when we're talking about Bitcoin. Also, it's worth uh, studying especially his points on happiness. Because that's, that's really interesting. Because it's different. It's a different mind that existed two and a half thousand years ago. But it's uh, really important to today. Yeah. And, and I also might say I th that's a good history lesson Max just gave about defragmenting. Because I don't think any Generation Z will understand that we used to have to defragment. No, you've got a database. You've got mm -hmm. a partition, partition that database. And there's a lot of stuff you can do. Yeah, but everybody, normal people had to do that to run their computer. Your, my, my Mac right now, I haven't had to defrag it ever. And I haven't had to do that since like 2000, maybe 2000, 2001. Yeah. Fair enough. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. I liked it a lot. Thanks for having you on my show and for uh, spending so much time with me. And yeah, all the best and see you. And we'll see you on Sphinx Chat. Exactly. And everywhere else where we talk about Bitcoin. And I hope in the real life too again. Hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposh.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production, Anita Posh. <laughs>